We're going to read from Acts 1, 1 through 11 this morning. Acts 1, 1 through 11. And then the sermon text will be Psalm 67. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering, and by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us now go to our sermon text for this morning, which is Psalm 67. Psalm 67. The title of this psalm is To the Choir Master with Stringed Instruments, a Psalm, a Song. It reads, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, Selah. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I would ask you to be patient with me this morning, brothers and sisters. I will admit from the outset that it will take... A little while to get back to this text of Psalm 67, uh, but I do assure you everything will uh, tie together in the end. I wish to begin this sermon by addressing a terrible misconception that some have of those of us who are Calvinistic and Reformed, and that is the misconception that Calvinists, so-called, do not believe in evangelism or world missions. Have you ever encountered this claim? I know that many of you have. This charge was slanderously leveled against us when we planted this church nearly 10 years ago. And I have heard that some of you have even been asked this question recently. So is it true that Calvinists do not believe in evangelism or world missions? The short answer, of course, is no. Of course, this is not true. 
But where does this misconception come from? And I would like to take just a moment and make three brief remarks about this. Where does this misconception come from? Well, one, it may be true that some within the Calvinistic and Reformed tradition have neglected evangelism and world missions. I think we do need to admit this. I don't doubt it for a second. But listen carefully. Their neglect is not the result of our beliefs, but of sin. These, for one reason or another, have failed to do what they know in their minds and hearts that the Scriptures call them to do. That is, to go and make disciples of all nations through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if there has been neglect amongst the Reformed, it is not the product of our theology, but of spiritual lethargy. And if our critics were to be honest, they would admit that this very same spiritual lethargy does sometimes appear in other traditions too, other traditions besides the Reformed tradition. Two, there are some who call themselves Calvinists who hold to erroneous views on this subject. We would refer to them as hyper-Calvinists. And these do in fact err in their doctrine by downplaying the role of human responsibility in the Christian life in general and in the salvation of sinners in particular. But these hyper-Calvinists are badly out of step with the Reformed faith, that is to say with biblical Christianity. As we will see in just a moment, the Reformed believe that God is sovereign over all things, including salvation, and that man is also responsible to do what God has called him to do. And one thing that God has called His church to do is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so we do not want to be confused with the hyper-Calvinists. Three, I do think it is ultimately the ignorance of our critics that produces this misconception. They are ignorant of our beliefs and they are also ignorant of the Scriptures. When our critics hear us say that God has chosen some for salvation, which is what the Scriptures clearly teach, they assume that means there is no need for evangelism or world missions then. And this is truly an absurd notion. Our critics are guilty of of jumping to these conclusions. And I want you to see how they jump. They hear us say what the Scriptures say, that God has chosen some for salvation. You may see Ephesians 1, 3 and following, for example. And that God is sovereign over salvation, meaning that He will certainly bring those whom He has chosen to faith. You can see Ephesians 2, 1 and following, for example, here. And they then jump to the conclusion that there is no place for evangelism in our theological system. You can see how they get there, actually. But they connect dots that do not necessarily connect. I want you to think of it. If it is true that God has chosen some for salvation from before the foundation of the world, and it is true, see John 17, see Romans 8.28 and following, And if it is true that God will certainly save these, you can see the text cited above along with John 6.35 and following, to see that this is also true, the question must still be asked, how will God bring His elect to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ? That question is still left to be answered. He's chosen some from before the foundation of the world. The Bible teaches this. He will certainly bring these to salvation. They will come to faith and He will preserve them. The Bible also teaches this. But the question that is left to be answered is, 
How will He do it? How will He bring His elect to faith and to salvation in Christ Jesus? What means will He use? How will He move these elect of His from unbelief to belief, from death to life, from wrath to grace? Will He simply act upon them immediately and supernaturally without any human intermediary? Will God simply zap His elect from on high and cause them to believe in Jesus the Messiah? And we know that the answer to that question is no. This is not what the Scriptures teach, nor is it what we believe. So how will He bring His elect to faith in Christ and thus to salvation? You know the answer, but I think it does need to be stated publicly nonetheless. He will do it through the proclamation of the Gospel and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. This is the means that God will use. The proclamation of the Gospel and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Spirit of God must work. A spirit must open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, and breathe spiritual life into those who are spiritually dead. God must do that work. And we confess that if He does not, then none will ever be saved. See John 3.3 and following, and 6.44 and following. But the gospel must also be proclaimed by us. For this is the way that God has determined to bring His elect to salvation. He will do it through the preaching of His Word and the working of His Holy Spirit. And this is why Christ told His disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28.18 and following. And this is why He sent them out as witnesses. We have just read of this in Acts 1.1 and following. And when they went out from Jerusalem to go to the nations, what did they do? What did His disciples do as they, as they went out? Well, they proclaimed Christ crucified and risen. And why were they confident that anyone would believe in their message? Why did they go out with such confidence? Now, the answer is that their confidence was in God, in the knowledge that He had His elect scattered throughout the nations, and that as they went and preached the gospel of the kingdom, those chosen by God and appointed to salvation would in fact believe. Stated differently, their confidence was in the sovereignty of God over all things and over the salvation of souls in particular. And so, no, there is no, there, there is no reason to think that there is a conflict between the sovereignty of God over salvation and our responsibility to, to bring the gospel to uh, those who have not yet heard it. The apostles' belief in the sovereignty of God over salvation did not produce lethargy in them, but rather it propelled them to go with boldness in obedience to Christ's command, knowing that God would surely accomplish all of His purposes through them. This mindset that God is sovereign over the salvation of His elect, and that we must be responsible to go and proclaim the gospel, for this is the means by which all will be saved, is clearly seen in the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, you could see this on display. And for example, in Acts 13, 13 and following, we read of Paul and Barnabas's gospel ministry in Antioch. And as the story unfolds, we learn that many of the Gentiles in that place were receptive to the gospel message that they heard from Paul and Barnabas. 
And I want you to listen very carefully to how Luke describes what happened. He says in verse 48 of Acts 13, And when the Gentiles heard this, that is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So the response was positive. They were receptive to the gospel. And this is what Luke says. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you hear that? Here is how Luke interpreted uh, that, that event. The gospel was preached. Many of the Gentiles rejoiced in the gospel and believed upon it. And what did Luke say? He said, here is what happened. All who were appointed to eternal life believed. The gospel was preached by Paul and Barnabas. Many believed. And this was Luke's interpretation of it. It was those appointed or assigned to eternal life who believed the message of the gospel. In other words, it was the elect of God who believed. Those chosen by God believed. And this was the understanding of Christ and all His apostles. The gospel would be preached and the elect would respond in faith as the Spirit of God worked upon their hearts. This is exactly what Christ taught when He concluded that parable regarding the invitation to the wedding feast with the words, For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. What was Jesus doing there in the moment? He was, he was teaching His disciples concerning the gospel of the kingdom and, and how it would go. He was teaching them that many would hear this call externally. They would hear it with their ears. They would hear the gospel call with their ears, with their natural ears. But it would only be those chosen of the Lord, and therefore called of God inwardly and effectively, who would respond in faith to the invitation. Christ was simply preparing His disciples to do this work of evangelism. He was preparing them for the Great Commission. He was saying, go to the highways and the byways and invite everyone. Very many will hear the invitation, but many are called while few are chosen. It will be those who are appointed to salvation, elect of God, chosen by God, who will respond to this invitation with gladness and with joy in their hearts. I think what Jesus was doing was preparing His disciples to be good evangelists and good missionaries, to go with boldest, knowing that God had prepared the hearts of many to come to faith in Jesus the Christ. So, No, the biblical doctrines of predestination and effectual calling, which the Reformed are faithful to teach, do not nullify the need for evangelism. For it is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the elect will be drawn to faith and salvation. Stated most bluntly, no gospel, no salvation. No gospel, no salvation. I might say with the exception perhaps of elect infants dying in infancy and other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. Here I am citing our confession, chapter 10, paragraph 3. But in general, no gospel, no salvation, for the Lord has determined to bring salvation to His elect by means of the gospel ministry, by means of gospel proclamation. And this is why Paul, yes, the very same Paul who so clearly teaches the doctrine of election or predestination in all of his letters, says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of this gospel, Paul says, because I know that this is the thing that God is going to use to bring salvation to the nations, to the Jews and to the Greeks. I'm not ashamed of it. And a little later in the same letter he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now listen to this. How then will they call on Him? In whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, The Lord, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is Romans 10, 9 through 17. So listen carefully to this. The Reformed agree with Paul and with the rest of the Scriptures that there is no conflict between the biblical doctrine of election and the need for evangelism, for this is how the elect will come to saving faith, to call on the Lord. To call on the Lord, people must first hear about Him, and to hear about Him, Someone must preach to them, and to preach, someone must be sent. So in Romans 8, there is that golden chain of redemption, you know, that we're so familiar with. I think we might call Romans 10, 9 through 17, the golden chain of of world missions or of of evangelism. You know, in order for this this salvation to go to, to the nations and to come to people in the far off places, somebody needs to be sent so that they might preach, so that others may hear of Christ and thus place their faith in Him. Far from being a hindrance to evangelism, the doctrine of election does in fact motivate it. It does. For it is the doctrine of election that says, God has His chosen ones scattered throughout the world And He will certainly bring them to faith in Christ. So we must go and prayerfully preach the Word and watch as the Lord does His work. Stated differently, it is the doctrine of election that reassures us that the fields are indeed ripe for harvest. Just as John 4.35 says, God has His elect scattered throughout the world. He will prepare them. He will draw them inwardly. We must simply go and harvest them with the gospel message freely offered. Do you see how this motivates evangelism and does not hinder it? Do you see how this doctrine gives us the confidence we need to go and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth? Without this doctrine, I say we are hopeless. What will men and women do when they hear this message that so many consider to be folly? They will scoff at us. They will laugh at us. But no, God has His chosen ones scattered throughout the world. And we trust that as we preach the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will be working inwardly upon their hearts to bring them to salvation at just the right time. And this was exactly what motivated Paul to 
persevere in his ministry and in his missionary work. Despite all of the suffering, Paul persevered. He was persistent to take the gospel from one town to the next and to be driven out of that one and to go to the next one. Why did he do it? 2 Timothy 2.10 tells us where Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, he says, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with the eternal glory. So here was Paul's mindset. I will endure whatever suffering comes my way because I know that in this town and then the next one, God has His elect there. And as I proclaim the gospel, God will be faithful to bring them. And so I will do this work faithfully that God has called me to do. This was Paul's mindset. And it must be our mindset as well. Think of it, this same Paul who so clearly teaches the doctrine of predestination and election is considered to be the greatest missionary the world has ever known. So this idea that those who believe and teach the doctrine of predestination, excuse me, effectual calling, limited atonement, all the rest, do not believe in evangelism, it's a ridiculous charge. This is not what we believe. This is not what we teach. For this is not what the Scriptures say. And also it is not difficult to see that this is not the case when one considers church history. If you would only take a moment to study the history of the so-called modern missions movement, you would see that it was sparked by men with Reformed and Calvinistic convictions. Have you ever heard of a man named William Carey? Anyone? We need to study church history more here in this congregation. I know that's true, but maybe you've heard of him. William Carey. He goes by this name. This is what people call him. He is the father of modern missions. Did you know that he was a particular or Reformed Baptist. That's what he was. And did you know that he was sent out to do his work by particular, that is to say, Reformed Baptist? Adoniram Judson was also a particular Baptist. He became one. He became one as he sailed to do his mission's work. Um, so too was Luther Rice. These leaders in the modern missionary movement were all Calvinists. They believed just as we believe and so, brothers and sisters, Reformed theology properly understood does not hinder missions. No, it, is, it, it propels it. Why? Because Reformed theology simply tells the truth regarding God's plan for the salvation of sinners, His accomplishment of that plan in Christ, and the means by which He will apply it to His elect in every time and place, that is, through the preaching of His Word and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So, what does all of this have to do with Psalm 67, you're wondering? Well, here's the point that I wish to make from this psalm. While it is true that our doctrine of salvation does not hinder evangelism, but rather encourages and propels it, it is also true that our understanding of the history of redemption, that is, our understanding of what is called covenant theology, does not stifle our zeal for world missions, but should propel us to take the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, knowing for certain that this has always been God's plan. The dispensationalists, at least the radical ones, missed this. In their minds, the great commission that Christ gave to His disciples to go and make disciples of all nations was plan B in the mind of God. Not all dispensationalists talk in this extreme way, but some do. 
To them, plan A was for God's kingdom to be established with ethnic and Old Covenant Israel. But when Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, then the gospel was to be proclaimed to the Gentiles as plan B. And a greater misunderstanding of the overarching story of the Bible can hardly be imagined. We reject this view in all of its various forms and insist that God's plan has always been the same. By the way, how could it not be? Uh, for our God does not change. There are no plan B's with God, brothers and sisters. His plan has always been to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation through faith in the crucified and risen Christ. This has always been His plan. And we need to see this. It is apparent as we study Psalm 67 uh, this morning. It proves the point. Here we have a psalm or song written and sung by Old Covenant Israel. Do not miss that fact. This song was written and sung by Old Covenant Israel. And what is its central concern? It is that Salvation would come to all of the nations of the earth. Can you imagine uh, the Jewish people living under the Old Covenant, singing this psalm, uh, crying out to God, begging Him that salvation would come to all the nations of the earth? Yes, it is certainly true that from the days of Abraham up to the day of Pentecost, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, the gospel of the kingdom was largely confined to the Hebrew people and to the nation of Israel. They were blessed to have the Word of God, to worship God, and to know and preserve His very great promises concerning the Messiah who would come from them. But hear this, they were blessed to be a blessing. And they knew this, or at least some of them did. Believing Israel knew that they were blessed by God to be a blessing to the nations. Listen to what they sang. May God be gracious to us, they said, and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power to all nations. This was how they sung. Bless us, O Lord, so that we might be a blessing to the nations. The first line of this psalm is drawn from the blessing that Aaron the priest and, the son, and his sons were commanded to pronounce upon Israel, as recorded in Numbers 6, 22 and following. There we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put My name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And here in Psalm 67, the people of Israel pick up on this, and they cry out to God for this blessing. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us, they sing. But in verse 2, the purpose for this blessing is acknowledged, beginning with the word that. That, or we might say, so that, your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. As I have said, Israel knew that they were blessed by God, so that they might be a blessing to the nations. They were chosen by God, so that through them, salvation might come to the Gentiles. This was always God's plan. And this plan was clearly revealed to them from the very beginning. 
Do not forget what the Lord said to Father Abraham when he called him to leave his country and promised to make him into a great nation. He said, Go from your country and your, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Abraham did not live to see the fulfillment of these promises, but, he, but, but we know the story now. We know that from Abraham, Israel came. But that, that is not all that God said to Abraham. He added these words of purpose, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from the very beginning, God revealed to Abraham and his descendants that they were uniquely blessed by God so as to be a blessing to the nations. Yes, it is true that many within Israel had completely lost sight of this in the days when Jesus walked the earth. And yes, it is also true that many from amongst the Jews were greatly offended by the news that the Christ died for all the peoples of the earth, that this gospel of the kingdom was to go to the nations, and that the Gentiles who believed would be grafted into the true Israel of God. But they were surprised by this and offended by this, not because this truth hadn't been revealed to them before, but because they either misunderstood or willingly ignored the Scriptures. From the start, Israel was blessed to be a blessing to the nations, and this is why they were to sing, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Secondly, we see in this psalm that believing Israel's desire was for the nations to give praise to God. Look at verses 3 and 4. They sang... Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, say law. You may read the New Testament and see the difference between believing and unbelieving Israel. One key difference is that while unbelieving Israel was Enraged at the thought that the kingdom of God would extend to the nations, believing Israel rejoiced greatly in this. Considered from the vantage point of Psalm 67, unbelieving Israel could not bring themselves to sing this psalm, whereas believing Israel sang this psalm heartily. And to illustrate this, in the book of Acts, there is a very large portion of the text devoted to the story of the Apostle Peter, an Israelite, proclaiming the gospel to a man named Cornelius, a Gentile. Do you remember that story in the book of Acts? It, it takes up a lot of real estate in, in, in the book of Acts. It, it, we, we hear the story and then we kind of hear it again through the report that pre Peter brings to the other apostles and disciples back in, in Jerusalem. So, being that it, it takes up so much real estate, I think we should probably think this is may be important for us to pay attention to. The story runs from chapter 10 all the way to Acts 11.18. In brief, Peter was faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and to his household, Gentiles. They believed and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Peter reported this to the church in Jerusalem, he concluded by saying, 
If then God gave the same Spirit to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And I want you to listen to the response of believing Israel. When they heard these things, they fell silent at first. They fell silent. So you could take it, tell it took them a while to digest this news, that, that this gospel of the kingdom was so received by, by Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But then the text says, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And I am saying that this is the way that believing Israel in the days of Christ uh, responded. They rejoiced at this news that this gospel of the kingdom had gone to, 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 to Gentile peoples, to the nations, and that the nations were receptive of it. Uh, these who believed in God and in the promises of God rejoiced to hear the news. This was always to be the disposition of Israel. They were to be eager to see the Gentiles believe in the Messiah and give praise to the one true God who judges the peoples with equity and guides the nations upon the earth. And why should the Hebrew people be so eager to see the Gentile people give praise to their God? Well, beyond what has already been said regarding the covenant transacted with Abraham and the observation that Israel was blessed to be a blessing, we must also say that the Gentile nation should give glory to the God of Israel, for He is also God of the nations. We can't forget this. Yes, the Lord was Israel's God in a special way, from the days of Abraham to the resurrection of Christ, that is to say, under the Old Covenant. The Lord was Israel's God, and they were His special people, that is true. But never did this mean that God was not also Lord of the nations. For we know there is only one God. He is the Maker of heaven and earth. He is Lord Most High, and He is the Judge, not of Israel only, but of all peoples. And so, that is one reason why Israel was so concerned to see the nations turn to God in praise. For God is the one who judges the people with equity and guides the nations upon the earth, our psalm says. To state the matter most succinctly, when God set Israel apart as His peculiar people, He did not at that moment cease to be God of the nations also. Or to say it in another way, when the Lord set Abram and his offspring apart from the nations, He did not forget about the rest of the offspring of Adam. No, in setting Abraham apart, his purpose was to bring salvation to the other children of Adam through them. For the God of Israel is the one and the only God. And so the nations must worship Him too. Lastly, in verses 5-7, through seven, we see that believing Israel knew that God preserved them so as to bear fruit through them, and they gave thanks to God. In verse 5, we find a repeat of the exhortation of verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, they say. But in verse 6, the emphasis is not on God as Lord and Judge of all the earth, as it was in verse 4, but on God's provision for Israel. In verse 6, we read, The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. Here, Israel gives thanks to God for His provision for them. The earth has yielded its increase means the Lord has blessed us with a good harvest. 
The Lord has provided food for His people to eat so that we might live. And the words, God our God shall bless us, are words of confidence and hope concerning the future. In other words, Israel was to testify to the Lord's past provision when they sang this psalm. And they were also to confess their faith and hope in God's uh, future provision. And by the way, I might ask, where did they get this confidence that the Lord would bless them in this way? How did they know that the Lord would provide for them? And the answer is this, from the unconditional promises given to them in the covenant that God transacted with Abraham. That's where they found this assurance. They knew that God would sustain them as a people because God had promised to sustain them and to bring the Christ into the world through them and to bless the nations through the Christ. And so here they have this confidence. God our God shall bless us, uh, they say. And I do love how simple, raw, and down to earth this portion of the, the psalm is. God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants so that they would be a blessing to the nations by bringing the Christ into the world. And how did God bless them? Among other things, by causing vegetables and grain to grow from the earth so that they and their animals might have food to eat. That's how He blessed them. That's how He preserved them. Not always in supernatural and, and miraculous ways, but in very down-to-earth ways, He caused the harvest to be brought in so that the people might eat. And when we consider the promises that God made to Abraham and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ from a high-level, big-picture perspective, we can sometimes lose sight of the fact that God kept these awesome promises concerning the Messiah by preserving His people in very ordinary ways from day to day and from season to season as His chosen people gave glory to Him while planting seeds and reaping the harvest for, for hundreds of years. I think there is a lesson for us in this, brothers and sisters. We love to consider God's plan of redemption uh, from that big picture perspective, you know. Look at the promise made to Adam. Look at how God chose Abraham. Look at what He did in the days of Moses. Look what He did with David. And look at how Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. It's that big picture perspective. It is so helpful in many ways. But how did God actually accomplish His purpose in very ordinary ways? Men and women would wake up in the morning and they would work. They would plant seeds. They would reap the harvest. They would go to bed tired at night. And then they would repeat the same, you see. Day after day and year after year. Decade after decade. On and on until the Christ was, in the fullness of time, brought into the world through them. I think we can learn from this because we too need to recognize that God does work through the ordinary and not just the extraordinary, even in our day-to-day -day life. Um, but here, I will say, do not neglect to give thanks to God for the little things, just as Israel did through this psalm. Israel gave thanks to God for His provision. They knew that God would be faithful to bless them in the future, but they were never to forget their purpose. They were to bear fruit in bringing salvation to the nations. Verse 6, The earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. They say, Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. They say, This was their prayer. This was their greatest concern. I began this sermon, brothers and sisters, 
by insisting that Reformed and Calvinistic theology does not hinder evangelistic zeal, but propels it. God has His elect in the world. Left to themselves, they would never come to faith in Christ, and so God will surely call them to the, to the faith. And how will He do it? He will bring the gospel to them so that they might be called externally through the ministry of the Word. And He will also call them inwardly by the power of the Holy Spirit. The doctrines of grace, or the five points of Calvinism, as they are commonly called, do not stifle evangelistic zeal. To the contrary, they stoke the flame. They ensure us that the fields are white for harvest, and that God will make our labors effective. It is the Calvinist who has reason to be confident in God when proclaiming the gospel. It is the Arminian, if they are true to their system, that must trust only in themselves, and in the goodness and light they imagine resides within the heart of every man. But I wish to conclude this sermon by saying that it is the Reformed understanding of God's working in the history of redemption which should propel, propel our zeal for world missions. Here I may contrast our covenant theology with the dispensational system that is so prevalent in churches today. When we go to the nations with the gospel brothers and sisters, we are not wasting our time with God's plan B, to put it in kind of a pejorative way. God does not have a plan B. God only has a plan A. And this is what we confess in chapter 3, paragraph 1 of our confession, which says that God has decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever that comes to pass. And what is God's will regarding salvation? What is His will regarding salvation? He has decreed to redeem a people for Himself, through faith in Christ, not from the Hebrews only, but from every tongue, tribe, and nation. What a glorious plan this is. What a marvelous plan this is. And we must remember, brothers and sisters, that this plan of redemption was not revealed first to Abraham, but to Adam. God promised to provide a Savior for Adam and his offspring. And when this gospel was clarified and entrusted to Abraham and his descendants, it was always with the nations in view. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Brothers and sisters, you and I are the nations. We should never forget this. Think of how gracious and kind God has been to us to bring us the gospel of His Son. Think of where we live. Think of where we are seated right now. Think of how far we are removed uh, geographically speaking, from the place where Jesus lived and died and rose again. Think of how far we are removed from where Abraham lived. We are a long ways off. And think of how far we are removed chronologically speaking. We, we live a long ways from where God accomplished these things that we read of in the Holy Scriptures. And yet God has been faithful to bring us this gospel of salvation. We are the nations. We are these Gentile peoples that God has blessed through Abraham and his offspring, Christ Jesus the Lord. It is a marvelous plan. We are so very blessed to have been grafted in to the Israel of God by faith. But here is one other thing that we must never forget. Like our father Abraham... And like Israel, which descended from his loins, we, the Israel of God by faith, are blessed to be a blessing. Our mission is still to take the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. Our heartfelt song must be the song of Psalm 67, 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This is to be our song, even still. Never can we allow ourselves to lose sight of the mission that Christ has given to us. He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, we have this confidence. I am with you always to the end of the age. May we be found faithful to do this very thing to the end of the age, brothers and sisters. Let me conclude now with a few very brief suggestions for application. One, let us be faithful, brothers and sisters, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in this place. In our homes, to our children, in our churches, and in our communities. We must be found faithful here. Being mindful of the nations does not require us to neglect the fields that are white for harvest locally. And so we must know the gospel. We must believe the gospel. And we must share the gospel here, praying and trusting that God will make it effective according to His will. Two, let us pray that the Lord would raise up ministers of the Word of God to be used by Him locally and to the ends of the earth as He wills. Christ taught His disciples, saying, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. We must pray for this. We must also work towards this end. And three, let us be sure to never lose sight of the nations. Yes, we are the nations. And yes, this culture is very dark and in need of the gospel and of biblical churches. But even still, there are places where the gospel has not yet been preached and where the church is in an even worse condition than it is here. We must not forget about world missions, brothers and sisters. Instead, we must be constant in prayer and eager to support gospel ministers so that they might be sent out even to the far out corners of the earth. Let's bow together for a word of prayer now. Great God in heaven, creator of heaven and earth, sovereign Lord, we do pray, Father, that you would have mercy upon the nations. We thank you for this marvelous plan of redemption that is revealed to us so clearly in the pages of Holy Scripture. And we thank you for the way that you have been faithful to accomplish that plan of yours, O Lord, to bring the Christ into the world, to accomplish salvation through him, through his finished work. And we thank you for the way that you have been faithful to apply this salvation to the elect in every age. This gospel of the kingdom has gone out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the furthest reaches of the earth. And here we are today worshiping you, God, through faith. In Jesus, the Messiah, we are grateful, O Lord, for the way that you have applied the salvation to us. But, Father, make us mindful of those who have not yet heard. Make us mindful of those who have not yet heard this marvelous gospel here in this place and also in other places too. 
Father, help us to know this gospel, to love it truly, and to be able to articulate what it means to others, Father. May we be very eager to give a reason for the hope that is within us, O Lord, here and to the ends of the earth. I do pray that you would work mightily in and through this congregation. I pray that you would make us fruitful in this way, O Lord. You have blessed us. Help us to never forget that you have blessed us so that we might be a blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.